Well, have a seat, guys. Uh, my name is Jesse. I think, I think we've all met. We're all pretty good friends at this point. Uh, when Jesse was three years old, uh, it was Christmas, uh, Jesse got a Nintendo uh, for Christmas. My brother and I did. My brother's five years older than me. Um, and when I say a Nintendo, I don't mean the Super. I don't mean the 64. I don't mean the GameCube. I mean the original NES Nintendo Entertainment System. And so it's under the Christmas tree. My brother has already peeked in the box two or three times before this. And so he knew what was there, and uh, and so we all knew what was there, but we can't touch the thing until Christmas, or else you know Santa Claus takes it back or something. And so uh, Christmas hits, uh, we tear open this box, and it's the NES box. Uh, it is it's wonderful, it's amazing, it's really really good. And so uh, the problem though is uh, nobody knows how to hook this thing up. Now it, it, today it's all these wires, and you have to buy adapters. It was really simple back then. You just had to plug like the cable uh, coaxial into the back of it, and it pretty much does the rest. It was really easy, but my brother didn't know how to do it. I'm three. I don't know how to do it. And so we're like, dad, can you help us out? And dad's like, yes, yes, sons, I sure can. And so my dad, he hooks up the NES. So we get the instruction book out. We make sure, but he hooks it up. He puts in Mario Brothers. He's like, hang on just a second. I need to make sure this thing works. Two, three hours rolls by. We're watching Dad play Mario Brothers. It was a lot of fun. Good Christmas morning. Uh, eventually, we had a chance to play Mario. And the thing about Mario is, uh, look, looking back, we didn't know how good of a game it was, but today, they say that the first level of Mario Brothers is the best level of game ever made. And people who argue this, they, they want to get together and like debate this. I don't, know where they, like, I don't know where they go to school to learn these things. But here's the thing that they say about Mario Brothers, is that if you play that original Mario Brothers game, who's played that game, by the way? Is anybody? You know what game I'm talking about? Yeah, you, woo, you do the little Mario jump. Uh, the first level of Mario Brothers begins with you know nothing about how uh, video games work. Remember, in the 80s, this is the first time someone made a game that looked like this. And the first thing you need to do is figure out how to go left and right. But the first moment of the game is just teaching you left and right. There's nothing else going on. And then you take like a few steps forward, and all of a sudden you have your first enemy. I don't know what to do with that guy. I, what, what do I do? What button do I press? You press this button, you pause it, you do other things. You don't know what to do, and then you figure out the first button. Within the first level of Mario Brothers, you experience every activity Mario has to know how to do in order to beat the game. If you skip any part of the first level, and you don't learn the lesson you're supposed to learn in the first level, by the time you get to level four, five, six, you're not ready for what's coming your way. Bowser, he's stealing princesses. There's fireballs flying. There's a Goomba, whatever that is. It looks like a little brown slug. Uh, But everything you need to know about the game happens in the first level, and it prepares you for everything that you're going to face out there. We're going to start a series today. I'm calling it Religious And it's in the book of James, because James writes this letter uh, to to the church, and he seems to suggest that everything we need to prepare ourselves for the life that we're going to have and the problems that life throws at us, we should figure out early in our game. And he writes the letter to kind of remind us of some things that that we should have learned or or maybe we didn't. He, he he, He believes, anyway, that your faith, your religion should be equipping you for what life is going to throw at you. Now, who here, honestly, has ever been in a situation where you, you, you were thrown in and you're like, I did not expect that. I, I, uh, I, I, did, I wasn't prepared. Nobody told me what I was going to be facing there. 
When I played football, uh, coach loved me because I had an anger problem, and uh, they could just throw me out there, and they're like, find the guy with the ball and just destroy him. And I would go, and I would try to take people's heads off. I was really angry. I'd scream a lot, um, but I had no idea what the plays were. <laughs> I never paid attention to the plays. And so I, I had a position. Uh, they called it bandit, uh, which is like an outside linebacker and uh, cornerback combination. And my job sometimes is to run and tackle the quarterback. Lots and lots of fun. Uh, and I was good at that. Uh, my job other times was to be in cover two and cover the flats. Still don't know really what that means. Like he would just yell things at me. He's like, Jesse, you should have been in cover two. I'm like, you're right. I just... Uh, I'll figure it out. And there were times in a game, uh, they would call a play. I'm in the huddle and I hear the play. We're running a, a robot red 22. It's like, got it. I heard every word you just said. And I get out there and I turn to the guy next to me. He's like, where, where do I go? I don't know. And he would point somewhere and I would just go and hit that person. Sometimes I'd get a flag called, but I, I didn't know what to do. And you would think after one or two games of Jesse asking the guy next to him what to do, the coach would be like, hey, come here. Maybe you missed the first day of practice where we kind of went over the playbook. Let me explain to you the most basic things of what you're doing so that you're prepared for game time. We should have a faith that equips us for game time. We should have uh, a faith that isn't just like we, we know the songs and we pray the prayers and we get together every week, but we should have a faith that whenever life goes sideways, we know which play is being called and we know how to jump into it and try to, try to tackle it. So let me ask this question. Um, on a scale of, of one to 10, how religious are you? Anybody? Uh, who would say uh, super religious, I'm very religious, I'm, I'm maybe the most religious person I know? Anybody? Mm -mm. No. Okay. Who is like, listen, religious is like a, it's kind of a bad word. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. So you're low on the religious level, but I have a good relationship with Jesus, like low religiousness, high religion, religiousness. That's okay. Yeah. We got hands going everywhere. Nobody knows where Jesse's going. The, the word religion uh, has kind of a negative connotation in some churches and in other churches is a really positive understanding. If you go to some churches, you're like, we're, we're, you know, I don't know why life is going bad. We're really religious people. And then you have other Christians, uh, like the, the like the Reformed set of Christians. They're like, yeah, I'm not religious. You just need a you need a good relationship with Jesus and stop sinning so much. And then you have other people who are like, listen, I, I'm here for the experience. I sing my songs, and I, religiousness has I don't, I don't know, but but James he writes this entire letter. And he talks about religion in the letter. He talks about religiousness in the letter that it should be a, an equipping. Thing. So it, it would be helpful maybe if we were using the same dictionary when we're talking about religion. I looked it up. Uh, here's what religion is defined as in Webster's. It has, if you, if, there's like 50 different definitions, but I chose these two. Um, religion, the first one says a particular system of faith and worship. It's a particular system. So you can have different particular systems, different systems of faith and worship, trying to understand God, trying to understand what we believe. Um, it's a very kind of bird's eye view of religion. The second one's good too. It says, uh, religion is a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. And there's nothing spiritual about that, that line. It's a pursuit or an interest. It's, it's a thing that, that is the most important thing in your life right now. And you, you, you put all of your eggs in that basket and you invest everything in that thing, whatever that thing is. And that becomes the thing that you're most supremely important. And I've seen a lot of families... 
usually with young kids, that their most supreme importance, the things that they ascribe all their value to, is their ability to be a parent to Billy and Sally, and they give, like, everything. They, they let Billy and Sally, like, just destroy the house, and they go, and they're like, well, you know, I, I, will, I, will, just, I, I will just care. But then these same parents, um, when they move off to high school, when they move off to college, when, when their empty nesters are all of a sudden in dysfunction, because they've been giving all of their value into them being a mom or them being a dad, and they weren't prepared for that season when they're empty nesters and the house is empty. I've seen um, young people, men and women, but, but I, I see a lot of guys do this, that they, their supreme importance, the thing that is most valuable to them is their identity as a provider for their family or maybe their job, and they work more than they should, they give more time than they should to this place of business because their identity is found in, in what their boss says about them. And then they get a new supervisor or there's a layoff or there are contract changes. And all of a sudden, everything is in disarray because we've been investing in that piece of our identity and we weren't prepared for the layoff. We weren't prepared for the next phase in life. And James thinks that our faith in Jesus if it becomes our supreme, most, most valuable aspect of what we're pursuing in our life, will prepare us for everything that this world will throw at us. So if you would, I would like to uh, maybe start working through James. We're not going to get too, too far, uh, just the first few verses and see where we get. Um, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion Greetings. It's a very simple hello. It's like, hey, to you guys, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a servant of God. Hello. How, how are you? Let's say a couple of things about this. Uh, who is James? James is the younger brother of Jesus, which has to be the hardest child. Anybody here have an older sibling that they think that they're just like, they hung the moon. They're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You, 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 no, no younger siblings in here. We're all firstborns. Okay, well, that's, that's a weird moment. Yeah, James, he grew up in a home that his older brother was Jesus the Messiah. <laughs> you know, uh, hey, James, uh, why don't you go clean your room? Be more like Jesus. Uh, Jesus, it's time to wash the dishes, and Jesus turns dishes into clean or something. You know, like, you know, he turned water into wine, he cleans the dishes. Uh, I, who knows what that's like to be Jesus' little brother? Here's what we know about James, um, is that when Jesus starts his ministry, there's a moment, you can read it in Luke, you can read it, I think it's in Mark also, where um, it says that his, his, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. There's a moment where like, his family, uh, Jesus' family, is trying to tell him, like, hey, Jesus, maybe you shouldn't you know, call us such a big deal. You know, people are really starting to get mad. And yet you have a guy now who is writing a letter as a Christian. What makes a little brother become a follower of their big brother as if he is God of the universe? That's, that's, that's got to be the, the highest uh, uh, piece of evidence for the resurrection ever around. To, to know that, that his oldest brother goes to the cross willingly to die for his sins and to, to make his life about that mission is, uh, I don't know, uh, I, feel, I feel like my brother would, would uh, be really proud if I followed him around. But here's James. James is a servant of God and of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. Uh, he writes this 
to, he says the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You guys remember a few weeks ago we were in Acts and uh, Saul, he starts ravaging the church and it says that they scattered from Jerusalem. They dispersed from Jerusalem. What happens after that in the church is uh, they, they, they had their local church in their local city and they were just kind of planted in Jerusalem and then they scattered across Judea, Samaria, they scattered across the world and then it became like hunting season for Christians. First it was the Jews who were with Saul and the rest of them, they, they were hunting Christians, but then the the Romans, they kind of stepped in and became like political fodder to be mad at the Christians. They used the Christians for scapegoats. And, and James writes this like in the mid 40s, uh, maybe early 50s, right at the height of all the Christians have scattered and the whole world is in turmoil. You have people who grew up in Jerusalem, they, they, their entire lives were in Jerusalem, and they had to leave out of fear of being killed, out of fear of their family being hurt, and they had to leave and go live somewhere else and make a life somewhere else. Uh, the rules were changing so quick, the laws are different in their new place, uh, and, and the world just seemed really, really chaotic. And he writes this letter to them because he needs them to know, like, your faith has equipped you for the chaos that you're enduring. Anybody feel like the last year or two has been really chaotic in our world? The rules change pretty quickly. You don't really know. Like, uh, and, and there's a lot of argument about what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. Everything is all up in turmoil. Uh, it seems pretty timely to look at this. And so he writes, he begins the letter after just saying hello. He says uh, in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. He's writing to a group of people that, you know, they, they don't know if the Romans are going to come hunt them down, but hey, if something bad happens in your life, count it a joy. Uh, I, I'm not terribly good at that. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I try not to be, but I'm kind of a complainer. Anybody in here get just a really good, like, therapeutic moment where, like, you know what? My life was really, or my day was really bad. I'm going to tell you why my day was really bad. Uh, he, he says, hey, Jesse, don't do that. He says, you should count it a joy. Well, I don't, James. Stop telling me my business, James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kind. Well, maybe he has a good reason why. Why, James? For you know, in verse 3, uh, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's, here's what Christians like to do, and, and I've been in, in these churches that do this, and I've been around Christians that do this. You face a problem, and then they try to tell you why that problem isn't a problem. Uh, and they try to minimize the problemness of the problem, and they try to make it look smaller or easier, or, you know, I've handled that before. Anybody face someone, like, every time you bring up something, they're like, not only have I faced that before, I faced something ten times worse than that. You're facing an alligator, I killed Godzilla, and it's like every time you say something, they already have the answer, and, and, and they want to make your problem look smaller, more manageable, easier to handle. James doesn't do that right here. When he says, count it joy when you face trials of many kinds, he's not saying, yip, yip, hooray, your problem is really small and manageable. Because the problems that he's talking about, he actually has friends who are being killed for their faith. Count it a joy when you face trials of many kinds. You mean when I'm running for my life down the street and I'm really scared? Like, yeah, count that as a joy. Why, James? Why should we count that as a joy? The reason why is because this thing, this trial, uh, this testing of your faith, he says it produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, uh, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's why we should count it a joy when you face trials of many kinds. It's because at the back end of a trial, whenever you look at after the dust settles, you look at what you were thinking about, what, what sustained you, 
uh, the group of people that had your back in that moment, the steadfastness, the things that you held on to, that is what galvanizes your faith. The problems aren't small. He doesn't minimize the problems. He, what, what he's maximizing is when you go through those trials and you know that like right now, if you're in a moment right now that you're in a trial, he says count it a joy because if you hold on to this trial, if you make it through and you look back and you see what you held on to, you'll see that your faith made you strong. The people that came to you in your trial, in your problem, those are people that you can trust. That this trial produces uh, steadfastness and steadfastness will show that you are being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James believes that our faith in Jesus should make us stronger for the problems that the world throws at us, the trials that are outside, the, the family dysfunction, the, the things that go on at work, the, the, the you know, we will say marriage problems, the, the, the things that, that just come up against us over and over and over again. Our faith prepares us for that. Okay, so that you may lack nothing. Then he goes straight into uh, something we should say about James as we, as we look at it. It's, it's kind of, um, I don't want to say ADHD, uh, but he's all over the place. And, and James, he kind of, uh, if, you, if you've read any of Paul, uh, Paul will make this long, like, multi-chapter argument for something, and then he'll give you the conclusion. You, you know people who talk a lot? My, I've, my, my grandfather was that way. I would ask him, like, hey, hey, Grandpa, where's the hammer? And he would go with, like, this two-hour story about, like, the invention of hammers and why it's hung at a 20-degree angle or whatever. Like, there's this whole thing. And all I really wanted to know was the, the location of the hammer. Uh, Paul is more like my grandfather. He would just go on and on and on about something and then give you the conclusion. It's good to know the argument for things. James, he doesn't waste time with it. James just tells you things. He's like, boom, you should count it pure joy. Boom, if any of you, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Who gives generously, uh, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. When we, when we go through problems, when we go through trials, when we go through, uh, he'll use the word tribulations, he'll also use the word tests. Uh, when we go through the junk that life throws at us, uh, a lot of times, uh, a little extra wisdom would help us get through that moment. Sometimes uh, it's wiser to speak up when, when silence would be easier. Sometimes it's wiser to keep your mouth shut. Uh, that way nobody knows you don't know what you're talking about. It's a quick way to, to look dumb is to start talking when you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Ask God who gives to you generously without reproach. It'll be given to you. If, if we go into a season and we don't know how to handle it, we don't know how to handle that moment with our job, we don't know how to handle that moment with our marriage, James is like, have you, have you, have you guys talked to God about that yet? When the church that he's writing to is scattering and they're trying, well, what city do, do I move to? I've never lived in Samaria my entire life. I've never lived in that area. I've never, I've never been around those people. Which one should I go to? James, like, I don't know. Have you talked to God about it? You, go, you have a problem that's super confusing and, and you don't know, you don't know like how to handle the finances of it. You have a dream that you feel like God is calling you to, but it doesn't make any sense right now. Have, have you stopped to ask God for wisdom? Because what what James is guaranteeing right here, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you with this one warning in verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
He's warning us that we don't become a group of people that just kind of put on Christianity when it's convenient. That uh, you go, we, we, we know people who do this. We go and we live our lives any way we want. Uh, we're, we're super mean uh, to people out there. And then we come here and we, we do the holier than thou talk and we talk super spiritual words and we, we put on our Christianese face. He, he says that person's double-minded. They're, they waver back and forth. But if you're really wanting to get to the bottom of a problem, if you really want to get to the bottom of a trial and, and you're just like, I need, I need some help. I need some help figuring this out. He says, go to God, ask him for wisdom, and he gives it to you when we're not double-minded, that our faith is fully set on Jesus being the answer for this, and we're, we'll, we'll find it. We don't, we don't want to be unstable in all our ways. Uh, verse 9, uh, he, he talks about some problems that uh, may come up uh, as, you, as you look in the mirror. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Let the, let the poor man boast in his poorness and the, the rich man, uh, or the poor man boasts in his exaltation and the rich man boasts in, in, in his fruitlessness. He, he's warning in, in wisdom that we don't put a lot of stock in, in who we say that we are and, and what, what we have going on for us. The warning for the rich man is that a person with a little bit of dough in their pockets thinks that this dough fixes everything. That I can throw some money at, at this problem. I can get myself out of this debt. I can buy myself a car and make myself really happy. Uh, I can get Jesse that NES that his dad wouldn't let him play and just like really uh, help him out there. Um, and, and, and in the pursuits of all of this, life happens, stock market goes down, and the rich man finds it all burned up. It's all scorched under the heat. The, the poor person, he says, let, let, him, let him boast in his exaltation. There's a lot of different kinds of poorness. There's you know, the, the finances, which is his image here, but a lot of us, we, we really hate ourselves. We have a habit of looking in the mirror and seeing every flaw in ourselves, and we, we, look, we, we bring ourselves down. And, and something about being in the church, our faith, should be that we look at each other and we, we build each other up, that we lift each other up. Uh, a few years ago, there was a Dove commercial. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, it's a Dove commercial. And uh, it, it was something about the pureness of Dove. I don't know what, why, they, why Dove did this. And they would take all of uh, these moms with young kids and they would separate them, and they would ask the mom to describe themselves. And then they would go over here and ask the kid to describe their mom. And so the mom, she would talk, and she would say, well, you know, there's just, just not enough time in the day, and uh, I, really, I, I feel like my kid needs more of me, and uh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, and uh, I've, I've got this, this mark here, and I just, I, I'm, not, I'm not pretty enough. Uh, my husband, you know, and just really down on herself. Every time they did this, she'd be down on herself. She, very self-deprecating, the woman. Then you go to this four-year-old, tell me about mom. She's the most beautiful person I've ever seen. She's so kind. She plays with me. She makes my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She puts the peanut butter around the rim and the jelly goes right in the center. It squishes and it makes a noise and they're just so good. And then she cuts the crust off. She loves me. I love my mom so, so much. And they would play this video to the mom. She's like, well, mom, uh, we see what you think about you, but let's see who this person who knows you better than almost anybody else, what they say about you. And the mom would see herself through their daughter or their son's eyes and would just melt an ugly cry and and then dove would flash their logo and like come buy our soaps i don't know so you can ugly cry or or whatever whatever it is that they were doing 
And, and, the, and the point that they were trying to make is that you're a terrible judge of yourself. You're a terrible judge of yourself. Those moms thought they were very poor. Let them boast in their exaltation. We, we should be a group of people that look out for each other and, and, and build each other up. But he says, that he, he was just talking about wisdom. And it says, if any of you lacks anything, ask God for the wisdom. But something that, that, that hinders us and something that handicaps us as individuals is that when we uh, think about ourselves, we either think about ourselves too low or too high. And, and James says, there's a scorching sun that's going to come and even the playing field. Whatever you think about yourself really doesn't matter much. It matters who God says you are. That second song that we sang, I am who you say I am. You are who Jesus says you are. And if you think you're the savior of the world, Jesus says you are not the savior of the world and you're really not that great. If you think you are the worst person in this room, you're a sinner beyond any possibility of forgiveness. Jesus says, no, you are a forgiven child of mine and I'm adopting you uh, into this family. You are who Jesus says you are. Don't think yourself too high or too low, but we should, we should, we should know where we stand. If we know where we stand, then we're better equipped to face the trials and problems that this world, the junk that this world throws at us. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There he goes. He's talking about being steadfast under trial again. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. At the end of this world, at the end of your time on this world, um, we go and we, we chat with the Father. And the Father, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't count uh, against us our sins, those of us who have confessed Jesus. So our conversation with him is the crown of life. Our conversation with the Father is your blip, your, your, your uh, James will later call it a vapor. Your life is but a vapor. You're just barely here. In, in, the, in, the, in the strands of eternity, Every pain, every, every heartache, every tear you're going to shed is just a small blip of, of your eternal self. He says, at the end, we receive this crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. He had just finished talking about being steadfast under trials that are kind of outside in the world, but now he starts getting in our heads. Because he says, let uh, no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's telling them in the dispersion, as they scatter and the rules change around them, the world that they're in earlier, that sometimes you have problems outside, and, and our faith in Jesus has prepared you for every struggle you're going to get from like debt collectors and mean people. But now he goes to the inner world, the inner workings of our mind, and, 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 he, and he says, our faith has also prepared you for that. Let no one say when he is tempted that he's being tempted by God. Our temptations, the desires that we have inside of ourselves the, to do mean things to other people or to do wicked things, he says that doesn't come from God. No, God doesn't tempt with evil. Uh, John will say that later in 1 John, that in, in God there is no shadow of turning. If, if, we are, uh, if we say that we are without sin, John would say, then, then we're lying and we're telling God that he's a liar. 
Here, uh, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our temptations, the temptations to do wrong, to, the temptations to, to be mean to someone else, to, to use the, the, the Bible word sin, our temptations to sin, um, they don't come from God. They come from inside of our self-destructive nature. But each person, when he is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, where, where, does, where does temptation come from? Whose desire? His own. He, he, he's saying, guys, we need to be really honest with ourselves that inside of us is a desire to do wrong. And we always want to blame other people. We blame our little brother. Um, we, uh, we, blame, uh, we blame Congress. We blame uh, the president for our uh, problems. We, we blame the devil. He tempted us. Uh, we, we blame... Maybe, maybe James is suggesting, I don't know, that we look in the mirror and that we're really honest with ourselves and we start to do business with ourselves and, and try to get to the bottom of it. It says, it says that uh, we're enticed, we're lured and enticed by our own desire. I, I've recently started uh, fishing again, probably in the last year or two, and I love the idea of fishing. Uh, I love the idea of I'm throwing fake food into the water, and I just kind of jiggle it around in a funny way, and the fish is like, I don't like that at all. That is disgusting. I am not going to eat that. I had one time, I'm fishing, and I can see in the water a bass come up to the lure, and I'm like, here we go. It's game time. He's going to grab it. And he looked at it, he smelled it, I jiggled it, he's like, nope, and he took off. I'm like, come on, man, it doesn't get any better than that. It is right, right there. Uh, last week, we were at kids camp, and uh, uh, they have a, a pretty good pond uh, for fishing, and so, so I'm fishing, same worm, actually, that, that one bass didn't like, but I'm fishing, and I've cast it, like, way, way over here, and there's this turtle, he's swimming across the top of the lake, and all these kids are around, it's all, like, you know, elementary kids, and they're, they're, all, they're all sitting there, and I'm like, oh, look, look, there's a turtle. And it's like, yeah, turtle, turtle. And then right behind the turtle was this bass, like chasing the turtle, which was weird. He's just kind of like, oh, look, look at that bass. And I'm cast away over here, and all of a sudden that bass just, and like across the lake, we're talking like 50 yards, he grabs it, I hook him, and, and I bring him in. He saw from like a mile away uh, this worm, and, and he's lured and enticed. He's like, that looks delicious. I got better at jiggling is what it is. Uh, and and he, he goes and he grabs it. And I bring him in, and the kids all cheer because, you know, you catch a fish, and you're the hero of the lake. Um, James, James says that inside of us are these desires that they lure and entice us. And we, we, have, we have this... This, this lure in front of us, this, this thing jiggling, and we're like, ah, that doesn't do anything for me. Okay, next, boom, switch it out. Different season, different amount of stress, and it's inside of us that, that this desire is there. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. For James, the desire to do bad things is not the sin itself. The desire is just the desire. We, we all have defaults in us that, that we really wish weren't there. Paul would say in Romans, he says, why is it that inside me, I know I want to do this, but I end up doing this. I hate the things that I do over and over, but, but I'm forgiven by Jesus. He's, he's lured and enticed by his desires, but it's not, the, it's not the sin. It's only when we give over to it. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. At the end of us uh, exploring, uh, you know, whatever the thing that is tempting us, isn't peace, uh, it's death. And then the next phrase says, do not be deceived. There, there's a, um, 
There's a, a, a strong move for everybody to tell us, no, that's not a problem. That is not a problem at all. Ashley and I, we had a friend, uh, this is years and years and years ago, so I feel like I'm not betraying any, any confidence. Um, we had a friend that uh, she wanted to leave her husband so, so bad. And every, every day she would come and she would talk and she would talk about uh, every reason she had that she could leave her husband. And everybody she would talk to, everybody else uh, in this conversation would be like, you're right, your husband's a jerk. You're right, your husband should treat you better. You're right, you deserve better. And every time she would talk to Ashley, Ashley's like, but you made a commitment to your husband. You promised to never leave him. You, you promised that you would, you would be there. And she ends up, after a few months of this, an entire world telling her, you're right, you deserve better, you deserve peace. She leaves her husband. She goes and marries someone else, and she has like no peace about it at all. Do you know why she has no peace about it? Because the world lied. At the end of the desire, at the end of the temptation, was death. Do not be deceived, verse 16, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, everything that's good in this world, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The Father, James would say, knows what's best for us. And he gives good and perfect gifts. It says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature, creatures, not creation, of his creatures. So James thinks that you and I, the church, um, we should be the first fruits of what God is attempting to do for the rest of the world, for our friends, for a world that is lost, for a world that is hurting. And as we double down and we fight temptations that are in us and we fight trials that are outside of us, as we, as we trust his way over our way, when we lack wisdom, we ask for wisdom, we become wiser, more obedient followers of Jesus, more at peace with, with who he's calling us to be because he's given us good and perfect gifts. And then we become first fruits of his creatures that when the world looks at us, they see what is becoming whenever God transforms uh, the world. Now he's going to go on. He's going to say, hey, you guys have a lot of problems in your church and we need to handle that. Uh, the next chapter we'll talk about like partiality, people treating people differently, that kind of thing. So it's not like we're completely perfect on this first fruits thing, but, but what he's promising us is that our religious endeavors, our religion, our faith should equip us for two types of trials. The trials that come outside of the world that just kind of bombard us. And the trials that are inside our inner world, our thinking and how we treat ourselves. And as we're prepared uh, for those things, we become fortified. And that this steadfastness, this history of following Jesus prepares us so that we begin to see the perfect and complete will of God. Uh, Romans 12, Paul will write that we, uh, we, we submit ourselves as a living sacrifice so that we know the good and perfect will of God. We, we want to live at peace with ourselves. We want to live at peace with the world. And James thinks that the following Jesus should prepare us for that. And so what, what I would say, um, just in, in applying this, is that if, if we find um, now or in the near future a struggle that kind of knocks us off balance, um, there, there are two things that, that I think James would have us do. One is that we ask for wisdom. Now, we ask God for wisdom. Like, where did this come from? Why, why, did I, why am I going through this junk right here? Um, 
We ask God for wisdom, and, and he promises that God will give us wisdom. And two, that we, we get with people who are also followers of Jesus, and we, we try to iron this out. We try to explore this together. If your faith, if your, if your religion is not equipping you for what the world has been throwing at you for the last six months, for what you've been going through in your head for the last six months, um, I would say that, that you've been exploring the wrong faith. If, if everything about going to church is just like an experience for just singing the songs, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment to, to uh, you know, meet friends and things. Those are, those are good things, but that's, that's just, you know, that's, you, you, could, you could go to, to like uh, Market Basket and hang out in that diner where all the people drink the coffee and talk things. It, it's amazing, by the way. I don't know if you've ever done that. If you ever go to the Market Basket, um, people talk like real life stuff with strangers, all the time. They'll like talk about their marriage. They'll talk about, and, and they just, they just do that. And they do that without church. If, if all your faith has been doing is just a chance to get together and gossip, you're, you're not fortified for the world. You're not fortified for your inner world. Um, we've been doing it wrong. James is worried about the dispersed Christians. They've scattered and they're in places that they're not used to. And he writes this so that they know their faith in Jesus. His older brother um, prepares them fortifies them, and protects them. I'm going to pray, uh, and I, I hope that, that as, we, um, as we go through the book of James, that we, that we would double down and, and just really evaluate what activities do we do that draws close to God, and, and are we being prepared for what the world is throwing at us, what our families are throwing at us, and uh, I, think, I think by the time we get through with James, we're going to have uh, some ammo, some things, some tools that we can use to, to handle the problems of the world, the hurts that the world throws us, and the hurts that we throw at ourselves. And so um, let's pray. Father, uh, this morning, uh, God, we, we come to you. Um, we thank you, Lord, that... Um, they give us a hope that isn't just uh, a mental exercise and, and uh, uh, philosophies, and it's not just a history lesson of the cross or some ancient world, but God, you give us a hope that is meant to sustain and to keep us, um, a hope that is meant to be uh, challenging but applicable to every challenge that we'll face. Lord, uh, I, I pray that we would be, uh, that we'd be wiser and where we run into a wall, Father, that we would be humble enough to ask for wisdom uh, from you. And we would trust uh, your wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from uh, the trials um, that, that this world will throw at us. You protect us from temptations that are inside of ourselves, that we would not be lured and enticed. We wouldn't run face first into death. Um, but Father, that we would be a good first fruits of your creatures, that we would, we would demonstrate to those around us that you are a loving and kind Lord, that is real and uh, is preparing us for a real world. Um, so Father, we, we, we ask you for those things because they're bigger than what we can do for ourselves and we trust that you can do that and much more. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.